You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right. Well, this is um, <clears throat> week or part three. This is week number three in a row, but we're talking about tactics for winning or strategies and tactics for winning. And uh, I really believe that the Lord laid this on our heart to to talk about this here at the beginning or the wrapping up 2023 and then moving into 2024. And um, I believe that um, there's going to be some helpful things that come out of this to really help us get our year started well. So do me a favor. Let's go back in the Old Testament to the book of Joshua. And let's look at Joshua chapter 10. We're going to look at a story that you're, I'm sure, familiar with, but maybe from a little different angle. Joshua chapter 10. This is the <clears throat> Pardon me, the story of uh, Joshua and the armies of Israel. And when Joshua spoke and uh, the sun stood still and so forth. And so we're going to look at that story. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, uh, Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. And we're going to look at this story and then dig some truths out of it that the Lord wants us to get. I hope uh, the lighting and everything is okay. Um uh, for you guys as far as what you're seeing and the sound is okay. I actually had to go pick up a webcam today, so I hope it's working right. So Joshua chapter 10, let's begin in verse 1, and it says this, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so had he done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. So let me pause right there. Uh, of course, we all know what happened with Jericho and uh, when uh, Joshua and the armies of Jericho approached it. Of course, the Lord caused the walls to fall down and they had a great victory there. Well, the next town that they encountered was the town of Ai and the Lord gave them a great victory there. And if you'll remember, the uh, people of Gibeon were scared of the the Hebrews coming and because they had heard what happened to those other cities. And you remember they um, put on old clothes and had moldy bread and so forth, and they let the Joshua and the children of Israel believe that they were travelers from a way far off place, and they fooled them and got them to enter into a covenant with them that they would not destroy them. And the truth finally came out that uh, you know these uh, people were from Gibeon, which was technically the next town that the, the children of Israel were going to encounter. So they had made this promise that they weren't going to destroy Gibeon, and so that's where we are. And uh, it says that Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, verse 2, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and it because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. 
<clears throat> excuse me. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So you got five kings, five armies that have combined and joined themselves together, and so now they're attacking Gibeon. And uh, so it says, and the men of Gibeon, in verse 6, sent uh, to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua, verse 7, ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So if you want to just remember verse 8, because we're going to come back to that. Again, the Lord said, verse 8, to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand, and not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua, therefore, came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, verse 10, so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Haran, and struck them down as far as Ezekiah and Mechadach. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Now, I'm not going to get into this tonight, but there's a whole backstory with the Amorites and you know, it wasn't that God was mad and just picking on these people and decided to wipe them out. No, there was a, a history uh, that led up to this. So, and again, I won't get into that, but just know that there was some background to that. And so then verse 12, <clears throat> then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel. So he said this where everybody could see it and hear it. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? That's a historical book to the people of Israel. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So nearly 24 hours, time stood still. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So you see this great miracle that the Lord did, all found there in Joshua chapter 10. And so let's begin to break this down and let's look at it. And again, I'm all about the details, so let's pinpoint some details here. And let me say this to you, really second only to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is probably the greatest miracle in the Bible. You might say, well, why would you say that? Because there's tons of miracles that are recorded in the Bible. But think about this with me, that, that most miracles impacted one or a few people. You know, there might have been, you think about all the miracles that Jesus did in, in, during his ministry. Most of the time, if it was a healing or something of that nature, 
it benefited one person or it affected one person's life. The only exceptions would be when he fed the multitudes. And then even in the Old Testament, you know, the, a lot of the miracles that we see in the Old Testament uh, basically dealt with one or a handful of individuals. But if you think about this particular miracle where time stood still for almost a full day, in other words, the sun never set, the moon never rose, and uh, so time was suspended. So think about this. This was the greatest miracle next to the resurrection of Jesus because it affected the entire world. You know, I, we don't have any record, of course, historically speaking, of who was living, say, on this continent while all this was going on over in the, the eastern continent, you know, of Southern Asia and all of that in the Middle East. Uh, but think about, you know, here you have somebody that's living on this side of the world, and all of a sudden, you know, they're used to the routine of the sun coming up every morning and setting in the evening and so forth and so on. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you have no clue why the sun doesn't set and the moon doesn't come up and your day sits still. And so it affects you. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, I'm sure it affected things weather-wise and all of this. You know, even the parting of the Red Sea was a great miracle. But uh, again, it only impacted that one small part of the whole world. And so when Joshua stood and made that commandment, it affected the entire earth, and it had an effect on it forever uh, because time did stand still. You know, there is a record, uh, and I don't remember all the details, but, um, and, you know, Matthew might even know more about this than I do, but uh, when the uh, scientists were doing all of their studies, when we first started launching uh, satellites to go up into orbit, you know, all of that is based on uh, synchronicity and everything, the orbits that they set and so forth. And when they started doing that, uh, all of the, the math and the computers and everything were not coming out correct and being able to uh, calculate time and everything correctly. And one of the engineers happened to be a Christian and remembered this story in the Bible. And when he plugged into the equation, what happened on this day, all of a sudden the math for the rest of the future fell into place. And so you can see that this one event affected uh, the entire earth, even up until modern time. And so what is, what is really funny, though, and I love God's sense of humor, but what is humorous about the story is that, uh, you know, Joshua commanded that the sun stand still. Well, the sun doesn't move. It, it We do. The earth is what revolves around the sun and rotates, and so... Actually, you know, in spite of his um, uh, astrological ignorance, God honored it anyway and caused, really caused the earth to stand still. Now think about this with me too. What happens if the earth starts turning? Well, gravity goes away. And so supernaturally, God stopped the earth from turning and yet nobody floated off into space. You know, people stayed on the earth and were able to function. So my point is this. This was an absolutely huge miracle that God performed, 
And notice again, what was the purpose for this miracle to take place? And it was this, so that God's people could obtain the victory that they needed and overcome their adversaries once and for all. So God stopped the earth from rotating for almost 24 hours, and yet gravity worked. And, you know, think about this, the people that were on the other side of the earth, and it was nighttime. Uh, you know, and they were thinking, you know, they had their sundials. I'm sure they didn't have alarm clocks, but, you know, they were thinking, okay, it's time to get up near. It's still dark and it stayed dark for the rest of the day. So anyway, so why did Joshua do this? Well, the main reason is he had a battle to finish and he needed to get this done. And there, there's some other underlying reasons. And if I have time, I'll mention them, but I want to talk just for a few minutes tonight about the five Kings uh, that were, you know, that came up against them. And again, think about the reputation that preceded the children of Israel. And really, it even preceded what happened at Jericho and Ai. You remember Rahab uh, that that sheltered the, the spies that went into Jericho. She said, she told the Jews, she said, you know, we've heard about what happened with the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. We've heard all about how God has moved and shown himself strong on your behalf. And so the, the, the reputation of what the Lord had done for his people preceded them. And so, you know, these, these armies were afraid. And actually that's what, um, that's one of the reasons that they came out against. They were ultimately after the children of Israel. So, let me give you their names again, and then I want to talk a little bit about each of them because they're all symbolic of something. They all represent the way that our adversary wants to come out and attack us. Now, again, keep in mind, all of this was because the children of Israel were heading to their destiny, their promised land, the place where God wanted them to be. And so our adversary, the enemy, the devil, is that's his main thing. He's trying to keep us from entering in the place of promise that God wants us to get to and to be able to walk in. So let's look at these five kings. So the first one, let me give them to you again, and then I'll describe and we'll talk about each one. The first one was Adonai Zadak, and he was the king of Jerusalem. Now somebody say, well, I thought Jerusalem was a holy city. Well, at this particular time, it wasn't. Uh, they had drifted away from the things of God. Of course, the Hebrews didn't have it yet. And so they were a pagan uh, area, just like some of these others. So Adonai Zadak was the king of Jerusalem. You had Hoham, H-O-H-A-M. He was the king of Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. You had uh, Piram, P-I-R-A-M. He was the king of Jarmuth. You had Jephiah, who was the king of Lachesh. And then you had Debir, D-E-B-I-R, who was the king of Eglon. So let's talk about these guys. So number one, Adonai Zadak, who was the king of Jerusalem. And what's interesting, his name means the Lord of righteousness. But it is not the Lord as we know the Lord of righteousness. Uh, in the Hebrew language, you know, and when you're looking at your English Bible, when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's all caps. And that means that it's referring to the Lord God, Jehovah. Well, this Lord of righteousness that is referred to uh, in Adonai Zedek's name is not the Lord God, Jehovah. It's another God. 
Okay, so what does this mean? Well, you know, one of the things that the enemy will come and try and attack you with is some form of religion in order to deceive you and to get you off track. Uh, you know, he'll try and come with some form of dece deception to get you to drop your guard. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to me. Uh, you know, I, I'm seeing more and more of this, uh, especially trying to infiltrate the church where people are uh, getting away from the word of God. You know, you're seeing places and, and, and uh, organizations, religious organizations that are compromising and uh, taking stands on things that are uh, definitely contrary to the word of God. You know, I read an article today where there's a particular denomination that is taking certain pronouns out of their uh, tenets because of, uh, you know, they're harmful to people, like terms like husband and wife and things like that. So you have things like that the enemy is trying to introduce. And, you know, we look at that and we go, well, that's dumb. We would never do that. But there are things that the enemy does try and introduce into our lives to get our beliefs in the word of God off just enough to where they become ineffective. And so many of you've heard of the priest Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and uh, he was the one that Abraham, when Abraham won the victory, he brought and paid tithes to Melchizedek. And we know that Melchizedek, if you written, uh, study the book of Hebrews, is a type and shadow of the Lord Jesus. So at one time, Salem or Jerusalem was a holy place, but they had gotten off track and become uh, very idolatrous and very paganistic. And uh, so what Adonisadek was was a counterfeit for Melchizedek. He was a fake of the right and original and the correct. And so, you know, one thing that we're going to have to pay close attention to, and the Bible says this, Timothy says this in the New Testament, that we're going to have to pay close attention because there's going to be things the closer we get to the coming of the Lord that the enemy is going to try and introduce as counterfeits. They look very much like the real, but they are counterfeit. I remember when I worked um, for the predecessor to what is now Bank of America, I worked for NCMB, North Carolina National Bank, years ago. This was in the mid-80s, and I was a teller for them for uh, a few years. And so uh, what I remember in our training as tellers they taught us about counterfeit money. And the way that they taught us about counterfeit money is they made us work with the correct, like accurate count currency, and then introduced the counterfeit to us, and we could feel the difference between uh, the correct currency, uh, proper currency, and counterfeit currency. And uh, so what they what they endeavored to do was to get us so familiar with what was right that we could very easily discern the counterfeit and the wrong. So if somebody tried to pass a counterfeit bill to us, we could feel that the paper was different, that it felt different, and so forth. And that's the same way that we have to be with the Word of God. We've got to be so 
familiar with the word of God and acquainted with it and have such an intimate relationship with it that when the counterfeit is introduced to us, it we know that it's wrong. It just it doesn't feel right. We might not be able to pinpoint exactly what's wrong, but we know that something is not right about this, and we're able to, to discern that. And so that's what the enemy is after. You know, this is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. You know, when he came to, to Eve, he tried to offer her something that God had already given them, and they didn't know it. And so he tried to present to Adam and Eve a counterfeit of what God had provided for them. And so that's what he's uh, he's going to try and do in our lives, is introduce the counterfeit. And we have to be on guard for that. Number two. King Hoham, H-O-H-A-M. He was the king of Hebron, and his name is very interesting. His name means the voice of a multitude, the voice of a multitude. And, uh, you know, so Satan, again, will come to us with the counterfeit and try and deceive us with that. The other thing that, that uh, Satan will do is he'll come to you and tell you something like this. When you're in the middle of a temptation test or trial, he'll come to you and say something like, you know, you're the only one that's experiencing this. Nobody else in the history of the world has ever experienced what you're going through. In other words, he tries to isolate us and to make us feel like everyone else is normal and we're the weirdos. We're the abnormal ones because of what we're experiencing. And uh, so what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to make up your mind. If you have the word of God on the matter, it doesn't matter what the multitudes are doing or saying. Okay. So if you have the truth of God's word and what God's word says about your situation, and by the way, there is nothing new to humanity. Everybody Humanity has experienced everything that we go through. That's what the Bible says. There is nothing, no temptation that is not common to man. That's what the scripture says, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so you're not weird, you're not abnormal, and you can't let the voice of the multitude tell you that you are. And so again, if you have the word of God on a matter, it doesn't matter what the multitudes are saying, it doesn't matter what the multitudes are doing. You always go with what God has said, okay? And there are going to be times when you feel like you're alone standing on the word of God. Stay with God, though, because I don't care what it looks like. God is always the majority. And let the, the naysayers say what they want to say. Let the multitudes say what they want to say, you stay on the word of God. When you're standing on the word of God, there will be those who will not understand or agree with you. Even your own family members are going to think you're a little different. Okay, let them think that. But I guarantee you when they need prayer, you're going to be the one they call, okay? Uh, because they've seen God move in your life. They know that there's something different about you and that it's right. And so, but they may never tell you that, but when their backs are against the wall, I promise you, they're probably going to reach out to you. So, you know, they may not understand or agree with you. Your family members might not understand or agree with you. 
but in like, as I said, there are going to be times when you have to stand on the word of God by yourself, but just know you're not by yourself. The Lord is with you as you're standing with that. And so ignore what the voice of the multitude is trying to tell you. The worst thing you can do is back down from what you believe because you're afraid of what people will say or think. You know, Proverbs tells us that the fear of people is bondage. And so you can never be afraid of what people think about you. If God is cool with you, then really that's all that matters. Okay? And so you always need to remember that. God stands with you and he will defend you when uh, you are standing on the word of God. I remember uh, somebody asked Abraham Lincoln one time during the height of the Civil War, and and uh, they asked him, he said, do you think that, that God is on our side? And he said, I'm not concerned about that. I'm more concerned about are we on God's side? And so, you know, that's something that we have to be mindful of. But I can promise you, when you're standing on the word of God, you are on the Lord's side and God will stand with you. So don't don't give any heed to what the multitudes are saying. Let's talk about number three, Piram, P-I-R-A-M. He was the king of Jarmuth. And what his name, and I'm not cursing when I say this, but his name literally means a wild ass or donkey. Okay, so again, I'm not cursing, So, but it means a wild donkey, and he represents something that uh, the enemy, Satan, will try and introduce and bring into your life, and that is instability and confusion. Instability and confusion. You know, um, he'll, he'll try and bring instability and confusion into your life, and then at the same time that he's doing that, he'll apply pressure to get you to make a decision while you're in that time of instability and indecision. And listen, or, or confusion. We all have times when we're not as sure as we would like to be. We all have times when it seems like life is, is unstable, that things are around us are unstable. And what I can tell you, the uh, a word of counsel that I can give you is never, ever make a life-altering decision when you're in a season like that. Let the Word of God and prayer remove the fog and clear, bring clarity into your life so that you can make an accurate decision. So, when in a time of confusion, you know, and it might be something where you've got to make a decision. Let's say you've got... Uh, somebody has presented some opportunities to you and, uh, you know, you're confused as to which one might be the one that God wants you to take or, you know, it might be a, a, a job change or, or anything like that. When you're in the middle of that time of confusion and you're not sure what to do, if, if at all possible, don't do anything until you know. And let me tell you something, God will never pressure you like that. He will never bring, of course, we know the scripture says God is not the author of confusion. So God will never put you in a situation and then apply pressure to you to force you to do something, okay? God doesn't operate that way. That is something that Satan does. God 
leads and we follow him, he never pushes you from behind. All right. And so, you know, I, I hear people will say sometimes, you know, well, the Lord really pushed me to do that. No, God didn't push you to do anything. He does not apply pressure to you and put bring things into your life to bring pressure so you will make a decision. Now, what God is all about is peace and clarity and, and specifics in the sense of you being able to discern and hear him in your heart so that you can make an accurate decision. So when in the time of confusion like that, pray for clarity and wisdom. You know, I'm reminded of the prayers of Paul in Ephesians chapter one and verse and chapter three, where he prayed and he said that the spirit of wisdom, uh, the spirit of revelation and, and knowledge and insight would be granted to us and so, you know, pray those prayers and believe God for clarity and the wisdom that you need to make the decision that you need to make. Okay. So again, Satan's going to push you and he's going to try and get you to act in that time of confusion. Do not bow your knee. That's like um, uh, the only thing in the natural. And, and you know, I'm not picking on, on car salesmen when I say this, but, you know, it, a lot of times... He functions like a used car salesman. And you know, if you've ever bought a car, you know how high pressure that can be. And uh, the best thing you can do when you start feeling pressure like that, side note, if you're on a car lot, is go home. Do not act on that decision at that moment. Get the emotion out of the way. Get the clarity that you need. And the same thing is true spiritually speaking. So, uh, God will never push you in that way. God will always give you time, not maybe not a lot of time, but he will always give you time to seek him for confirmation and clarification. Okay? So always remember that. God will always provide you with the time that you need to get confirmation and clarification before you move. All right. You know, I, I uh, Brother Hagen used to say all the time when he would teach us, he would say that God would rather you be slow in following him than he would be for you to be too quick and get out ahead of him. So it's a good thing to remember. All right, let's talk about the fourth king. Number four is Jephiah, J-A-P-H-I-A. He was the king of Lachish, and his name means this, bright or dazzling, bright or dazzling. Um, I'm going to kind of use a, a, a different illustration, but if you've ever seen the uh, Disney Pixar movie Up and the dog in Up, um, I can't remember the dog's name, but anyway, he'll be right in the middle of a sentence and all of a sudden he'll say squirrel and his attention's off looking for a squirrel, okay? Well, that's what the devil tries to do with us is to flash bright and dazzling things in front of us to get our attention and distract us, okay? And so uh, he will always try and use something flashy and attractive in the world to get your attention, to distract you. 
And one of the things that he does is he, 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 at the same time that he's trying to razzle dazzle you, he tries to make Christianity seem boring and unattractive. Okay. Like, you know, we can never have any fun. Christian people can't do anything. You know, Christians can't do this and can't do that. And, you know, Christian life is, is boring. And, and, you know, I'm, I may not go out in the world and do a lot of the worldly things, but I'm telling you, my life is anything but boring. All right. So Satan will always try and make the world and the world's way seem more attractive or dazzling and attractive to us. And uh, here's something, and I know you know this, but let me tell you this anyway, just to confirm it on the, you know, for your own thinking. The world may be dazzling, but it is empty and there is nothing to it. It's like a flash in the pan and it's gone. All right. So there is no substance to the things of this world. It is empty. It's, it fades away. Uh, it's, it will corrupt. It will rust. It, you know, there is nothing eternal or lasting about the things of this world. So don't let the enemy try and use something that's flashy to attract your attention. You know, I'm going to say this, and I'm not picking on anybody when I say this, but, you know, think about this. And I am amazed throughout the years as I've seen biographies on certain uh music stars, any, anybody from Elvis to Whitney Houston to, you know, some of the others. And I'm not being critical when I say this, but, but the thing that you will note about the majority, the largest majority of these, uh, particularly pop stars is they started out in church. Okay. And what happened? The enemy was able to dazzle them with things of this world and to distract them. And I believe in a lot of situations, get them away from what God had called them to do and to bring them to a place where they pursued and had worldly pursuits. You know, it might've been money, might've been fame, whatever it was. And I'm not judging, but I'm just saying I, I, I have been, amazed, and I could name a handful of them right now, of people that we all know, Many, some of them have passed away, but we all know uh, that became famous in the entertainment industry, but started out in church. Their roots were in church. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the sad thing is, um, I guarantee you a lot of those people if they could have, if they didn't, you know, if they if they had had the opportunity, would have gone back to their their Christian roots, their church roots, because they really discovered as they got along in life and found out that there was nothing to what the world had to offer them. Sure, it might have been more money, might have been fame and all of that and the adoration of people and so forth and so on. But let me tell you something, when the lights go off, and you're in that room by yourself, none of that does anything for you, all right? So anyway, number five, let's talk about Debir, D-E-B-I-R, the king of Eglon. And this word, the, the, the word, the name actually means oracle. And an oracle is 
a uh, voice that speaks false doctrine. Okay, not uh, and I, I know there are oracles for God, but I'm talking about a, an oracle that Satan uses is somebody that brings about satanic or false doctrine. Satanic or false doctrine. Okay, and uh, this is where the enemy, you know, will just straight up try and bring something to you that is diametrically opposed to the word of God. I mean, just flies in the face of what the Bible says. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, most of us are smart enough that we don't buy those things, but but there are some who do. Go with me. Put your marker thing there in Joshua chapter 10, but go with me over to Acts chapter 16. Acts the 16th chapter. And I want to show you something. Acts chapter 16. Uh, and uh, this is, we're going to look at verse 16. Paul and Silas have gone to the city of Philippi and they're preaching the gospel and they're going around. And um, so in verse um, 16, it says, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, now listen, pay attention to the details. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So here you have this little girl who's demon-possessed who was telling fortunes for people who were making money off of her. And uh, so she, all of a sudden, this demon starts inspiring her to follow Paul and Silas around and to proclaim these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, what she says is right. It's correct. But there's a problem with it. Let me go on and finish. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, um, one translation says Paul being grieved in his spirit, okay? It wasn't that he just she was just getting on Paul's nerves. He knew there was something wrong with this with what was going on here. And so Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. So the, the demon that was inhabiting her came out of her, and she lost her ability to be able to tell fortunes. But notice what she was saying was, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. She is saying a correct statement. Now, what is the problem with this? The problem is, when you're preaching the gospel, you don't need the devil to do your advertising for you. You don't need demons marketing for you, okay? And, and you know, more than that, God wanted this little girl set free. It was wrong what these men were doing. They were taking advantage of her. But what the little girl was saying sounded right, but in Paul's spirit, he knew it was wrong, and he turned and cast the devil out of it, that girl, okay? So what happens is, <clears throat> what even though it might seem right, it was contrary to what Paul knew to be 
the word of God. And so what the enemy is going to try and do is bring things into your life that are direct contradictions to the word of God. So what, you know, again, you don't need a demon advertising for you. The spirit of God is well able to proclaim and to declare and to provide signs and wonders that demonstrate the goodness of God. Okay. You don't, he doesn't need uh, little demon possessed children running around advertising for him. All right. So these kings, all five of these kings represent what the enemy desires to do in coming against us at times. And so let's go back and let's talk about the children of Israel again. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 10. And so here you have the, the, the children of Israel. They have um, come up and they've overcome two armies, but, but think about it with me. They are 40 years into this journey, 40 plus years into their journey to the promised land, and they had never overcome more than one army at a time. They had never faced a situation where there were five armies combined. Now, it's going to there are going to be times when it's going to seem like and maybe, you know, early on in your Christian walk, <clears throat> you have victories, you have a victory and then you have another victory. But let me tell you something, my brother and sister, there are going to be times when it seems like there's five armies that are coming out against you, where it seems like the enemy is coming against you five ways, okay, five different areas at one time, and it's going to seem overwhelming. I want to remind you of a couple of things. First John chapter 4 and verse 4, just make a note of that. First John 4, 4, it says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Them is automatically more than one. And because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So no matter how many armies it might seem are coming against you, greater is he that is in you than he that is trying to come against you. I also love the word of God in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where it says part of the blessing that comes upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ is that your enemies will come before you one way and flee from you seven different ways. And so you need to know that, and you need to remember that. Now go back with me to the Joshua chapter 10. Let me remind you about the promise that the Lord made Joshua in verse 8. Joshua 10 and verse 8, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand, and, and excuse me, not a man of them shall stand before you. Now let's break down what the Lord told Joshua in this promise, okay? Here's the first thing. Number one, the Lord told him, fear not. The Lord told him to tell the children of Israel, fear not. Now why did he start out by saying, fear not? Well, because there was going to be an opportunity to fear when they opened their eyes and they looked and they saw the size of this army that was coming against them. You know, you got five kingdoms that have combined, five armies that have combined to one, and it would be overwhelming. You open up, you look out one day, and all of a sudden you've got this humongous army that's coming after you. 
the, the first thing that God w- will tell you is fear not. Do not be afraid. Because the temptation is going to be the bigger the army, the more afraid you are. Okay? Do not allow that to happen. Do not allow fear to arise in your heart. You know, it might be where, um, you know, you get a bad report from, from the doctor or something like that happens, and it seems overwhelming. Well, the first thing you need to remember is fear not. Do not be afraid. Okay? I love uh, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will hold you up or uphold you with my right hand. Okay, so uh, what is it? 365 times in the scripture, the Lord tells us, fear not. Do not allow fear, pardon me, to get into your heart. Okay, now even though, (coughs) pardon me, even though the children of Israel were vastly outnumbered, it did not matter. Remember, God was on their side, okay? And I love what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 8. If God be for us, who dare be against us? All right, so the second thing, part of that promise is the Lord said, I have already delivered them into your hands. Notice the, the tense, the verbiage here, okay? I have already, past tense delivered them into your hand. But wait, Lord, I haven't even gone to battle yet. It doesn't matter. I have already delivered them into your hand. In other words, I have already given you the victory. Somebody says, well, I sure wish uh, God would make a promise like that to me. Well, hold on. Second Peter chapter one and verse three. Second Peter chapter one and verse three. God said this, or the Spirit of God through Peter said, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. What that scripture says is you already have what it takes to win the battle. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it. In other words, God has already defeated the enemy for you and for me. You know, I remember when we were doing our series, I was it last year or the year before talking about the armor of God and so forth. One of the biggest truths that I that I believe that the Lord wanted us, us to get out of that series is this. Understand that your posture as a believer is you is not you are trying to win the fight. Don't take that posture. Your posture as a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ is this. I already have the victory, and I'm enforcing that victory 
from the place of overcoming that I stand in now. In other words, you're not trying to, to win the fight. The fight has already been won. You just have to remind the devil that he has lost and you are the victor in Christ. It's a whole different mindset and a whole different posture. And so many Christians are laboring. Oh, I'm just trying to win the fight. I'm just fighting the battle. Quit fighting the battle. The battle has already been won. Do like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, having done all to stand, stand therefore. Stand there in that place of victory. Okay? Now, and then the final part of that promise is that he said, the Lord, the Lord told him, not a man of them shall stand before you. The Lord told Joshua what the outcome was going to be before the battle ever began. And he's done the same thing for us. He's told us what the outcome is going to be. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. <clears throat> God has already told you how it's going to end. Okay? The battle is going to end in your favor. 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Okay? So look at verse 10 in Joshua chapter 10. It says, so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter, and then it talks about uh, that they, they struck them down as far as Azekiah and Machedai, and it happened that they fled before Israel, and the descent of Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down large hailstones. Uh, so what is the point? The, the point here in this section is this, that if you will do your part and stand in faith, because notice they had to go, they had to go to the battle. And when they showed up and they did their part in obedience to the word of God, God showed up and did his part. Now notice this, you remember it says in... Um, Verse 11, it says, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. See, here's what you're going to find out. When you do your part by standing in faith on the word of God and God does his part, just know this, his part's always going to be the biggest and the best, <laughs> meaning uh, he's the one with more horsepower, <laughs> okay? So he's the one that's going to accomplish the most. But he can't do his part until you first do your part. And that might mean you just take a simple step of faith and you dare to believe the word of God. Let's say you've gotten a bad report. You know, it might be something financially or physically or whatever. Where you take a stand is when you dare to say, wait a minute, what does the word of God say? Well, the word says I'm healed. By his stripes, I'm healed. The word says that all of my needs are met according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's you taking a step and doing your part. And when you do your part, you open the door for God to be able to do his part. All right? Then in verses 12 through 14, Joshua 10, 
It says, then the Lord spoke, or then, excuse me, then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites. And this is when he said, son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole, whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, here's the point of this whole lesson tonight, okay? Write this down, please. When we're facing something, we do not fight until the sun goes down. We fight until we win. Let me say that again. We do not fight until the sun goes down. We fight until we win. Now, metaphorically speaking, if you get into a situation and you're running out of daylight, keep fighting. Fight until you win. And what I mean by that, and I, you know, this is going to sound contradictory because I just told you don't take the posture of fighting the battle. Let's say it this way. You're enforcing Satan's defeat. Okay. In other words, don't quit when it looks like the circumstances might be working against you. Stay in it. Stay in it. Okay. So let me give you a couple of thoughts before we end tonight. Number one, you need to get angry at the devil and quit tolerating his works in your life. You know, there's a lot of things that we put up with that we don't have to put up with, spiritually speaking, that Jesus clearly bought and paid for the victory for each and every one of us. And so I want to encourage you, you know, get something in your craw against what the devil is trying to do in your life. Put your foot down and say, I've had enough of this. You know, I'm reminded of the story. And I forgot which one of the, the, the David's 30, you know, his elite men that were with him. But there was one guy that the Bible makes note of that says that the Philistines were constantly coming down and taking this man's beans out of his, his bean, bean field, his lentils. And he finally said, you know what? I've had enough of this. I've had enough of the enemy coming down and stealing my beans and the Bible says that he single-handedly stood in the middle of his bean patch and defended his bean patch and killed many Philistines defending it. Why? Because he stood up and he said, enough is enough. I've had enough of this. You guys are not stealing any more of my food. Well, sometimes we've got to get something, some backbone in us, spiritually speaking, to where we say, enough, devil. You're not taking any more. You're not stealing any more out of my life. You're not stealing my health. You're not stealing my blessing. You're not stealing my family. You're not stealing from me anymore. Okay. Number two, don't let circumstances around you stop the fight. If, if it's getting dark, speak to the sun, say, sun, stand still. I'm not through fighting yet. Number three, don't give up any ground. Don't let Satan have any ground in your life. 
any territory. And when you, you know, listen, when we get saved, when we give our hearts to Christ, there's parts of us that need to be changed. We all know that. There's parts of us that need to grow and mature. There's things that we need to overcome. And we need to, uh, through, through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to overcome in our lives. But listen, when you have overcome something, don't give it back to the devil. Don't surrender that territory anymore. Okay? Don't give uh, don't give it up. Don't give him one square inch of what you and Jesus and the word of God and the Holy Spirit have fought to overcome. Don't surrender one inch of it. Okay? Because I promise you, he's going to come back with a counterattack and try and take back what you defeated him in. Don't let him have it. All right? Praise the Lord. I'm done. Praise God. Repeat number two. Ma'am? Repeat number two. The last part there, number two? Yeah, don't let circumstances... Around you stop the fight. Okay. Okay, like like it's getting dark. <laughs> like Joshua was encountering. Now, mm -hmm. there there is a reason that Joshua did that, and part of it has to do with... Uh, he had... He had gotten a king and impaled him on a pole or a tree. And there is a commandment in the, in the book of Deuteronomy that says that anybody, first of all, anybody that's on a tree is accursed and they cannot stay past dark. And so Joshua knew he had to get that, that prisoner off that tree. So he needed it to continue to stay light so he could fight the battle and then go take care of that after he got through. That's the Reader's Digest condensed version of it. But it's the it's the verse, it's where uh, Galatians 3.13 comes from, where it says, uh, you know, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for cursed is he who hangs on a tree. That's the commandment that that came from. And Joshua honored that, so... Praise God. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.